Good morning. It's great to be here among you all. When I walked in this morning, I was greeted, and, and someone said, so you're willing to come back? And I said, oh, you have it wrong. You're willing to have me back, eh? It's great to be back among you. Um, I'm going to start by asking a question, and it's, it's not a very comfortable question. Um, have you ever been powerless? Have you ever had the experience of being powerless? What were the circumstances around which your experience of powerlessness took place? Children are often powerless, and so sometimes our experience of powerlessness can come when we're child and we're vulnerable. Our families make decisions over which we have no power, and yet we are profoundly affected by them. Or perhaps something happens in the family dynamic between a mother and a father, or extended relatives, and at, what, at that point, something very shattering happens. A divorce happens, or a family breakups, or, or lines are crossed, or rec reconciliation doesn't seem possible any longer. And so young people can often experience powerlessness in the context of a family. Relationships are always messy realities when more than one person is involved. Perhaps we've experienced powerlessness one-on-one -on -one in a relationship. Maybe the personality type of a different person makes our experience of relationship with them very difficult. Or perhaps we've had the experience of living with somebody who is in, in the throes of an addiction. Being powerless in those circumstances are dynamics that are very real and profoundly impacting. I don't know what the statistics are in New Zealand. I, didn't, uh, I haven't looked up the incidence of it, but we can experience powerlessness in our bodies particularly when we're this, the victims of abuse. In the States, one in four women are abused sexually. In the States, one in five men are abused sexually. Uh, I don't know how that increases or decreases when you just talk about physical abuse apart from sexual abuse, but the experience of not being in control of our own bodies can be an experience of powerlessness that is devastating. Or maybe something not quite so serious and yet just as impacting, work. Maybe right now in your own vocational life, regardless of your effort and your competency, the economy being what it is, you have no power over what's going on in your station at work. I have a, I'm having a conversation with a student who's responsible for overseeing a chain of, of uh, workout facilities. And no matter what they do marketing-wise, they can't get people to spend money on joining gyms. And so despite his efforts, he's constantly frustrated in his work relationships. And it's not a very pleasant experience to try to make something happen when you have no power. How do you respond to the absence of power in your life? If you're all like me, the answer is, well, not very well, thank you very much. I quite like being in power. In fact, I work very hard to resist the experience of being powerless. When we experience powerlessness, we often work, I thought that was going to happen, we often work very hard to regain our power. When we experience powerlessness, we often work very hard to regain power and then not surrender it again. You know, it may not be an external, external visible phenomenon, this commitment to power that we have. In fact, often it's not. It's often an internal orientation that says, I want to be in control of my circumstances, whatever the cost. Power 
I believe is pretty important for us as people. And we don't usually surrender it willingly or easily. I think power is pretty important for us as human beings. And we don't usually surrender it willingly or easily. We're talking about the Lord's Prayer. And the context of it is that Jesus is teaching his disciples how they are to pray. That instruction about, about prayer comes in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which is about Jesus' teaching of God's alternate reality. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description of what life looks like in relationship to the Creator, Yahweh. And it's an alternate reality that mixes up and renegotiates all their understandings of themselves as human beings and what it looks like to live in God's good creation. He uses a word to describe this reality, kingdom. And so the Lord's Prayer is a prayer about what it looks like to interact with God amidst a teaching about what the nature of reality or alternate reality is in God's good world, the kingdom. The prayer illustrates the way we're to interact with God as citizens of this kingdom. And not only how we're to interact, it's also instructive about what life is to look like. Within this prayer, Jesus provides a framework for how we're to pray. Not just a a rote recitation of the prayer, but a whole way of engaging. And so it begins, everything we know about prayer begins in the context of, of calling God what? Father. The first thing we have to know about prayer and life in the kingdom is that it's always negotiated or or, or encountered in the context of a relationship with a creator who reveals himself as Father. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is is an ongoing reflection on what it looks like and what it means to call God Father. When you look at Jesus' teaching. See, the second thing about the framework for praying after understanding that God is Father is that God indeed is not an idol. He's not something that we fashion. Rather, He fashions us. God dwells in heaven. And it's God's desire that He sees His heavenly rule extended through and with His people on earth. And so we pray in this prayer for God's kingdom, His rule to become fully present, not for God's people to be snatched away. It's an invitation for God's reign to come and extend through His people into God's good world. And the third thing in this framework for praying, because God is a creator who loves His world, we can ask for what we need. Because God is revealed as Father, because it is a good world that God longs to bring His reign and rule into and not snatch His people out of. Because God is a good creator who longs to provide for His people according to their needs. In fact, because God knows our needs more truly and deeply than we know them ourselves. We can ask God to provide for us what we need on a daily basis in the full assurance that the Father knows what we need before we ask. In fact, in a few passages further on from this passage, he's going to talk about why we worry about what we eat and what we drink and what we wear. Because your heavenly Father knows you. He knows all this stuff. 
and he longs to provide for you in the way that he fills creation with his bounty. And that brings us to today's passage, this part of the prayer on forgiveness. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Let's read that out loud together. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Folks, I have heard, said, read, prayed that so many times, it's almost become rote. You know what I mean? And when something becomes rote, it becomes innocuous. Sometimes it loses its power over us. And yet, at the heart of the prayer about the kingdom, in the heart of the teaching about the kingdom, is this fundamental reality, forgiveness. Do you get that? At the heart of the prayer about what it means to interact with our Creator, in the heart of the teaching of what this alternate reality called the kingdom of God looks like, is this reality forgiveness. Why? Why does that exist at the heart of the prayer that lives at the heart of the teaching? Because God's kingdom is fundamentally a relational reality. Or better, God's kingdom is fundamentally a relational alternate reality. Between us and God and between us and one another. See, I believe as human beings, we are used to operating in economies of power where people are often means and resources to be used. Let me see that again. I believe that we're used to operating in economies of power where people are means and resources to be used. In God's economy, people are to be engaged and treasured as broken yet precious reflections of the image of God. In God's economy, people are to be engaged and treasured as broken yet precious reflections of their Creator. Now it's true Because of sin, relationships are damaged and in need of restoration. And we often accept that in as much as it relates to us and God, yeah? We recognize that we're sinful and we're aware that our sin causes a breakdown in relationship between ourselves and God. But see, in this part of the prayer that has become innocuous to us because we've heard it, prayed it, seen it so many times that it's become rote, Jesus makes a move that I think completely ejects the disciples from what he's talking about. So they're with him, they're with him, they're with him, they're with him. And then verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. See, Jesus makes an astounding move at this point in the prayer and his teaching. He ties the forgiveness from God to our ability to forgive other people. And I think it ejects the disciples right out of the moment. It seems that he's saying that if we don't live in forgiveness towards those who sin against us, we cannot expect forgiveness from God. Period. 
If we do not live in forgiveness towards those who sin against us, then we cannot expect to experience God's forgiveness, period. And like I said, I think Jesus loses the disciples at this point or shocks them to the point that they go blank. So he's teaching, he's teaching, he's praying, he's praying. I'm an instructor. I see this happen. I'll be going along and I'll say something and half my room, will, I'll just lose them. Sometimes it's because I'm boring, right? Other times it's because I've said something that's caused them to check out for a moment. And so I have to finish my statement for the sake of, of the continuation of what I'm trying to teach. But then if I'm a good teacher, what do I do? I return back to the point where I lost half the room. And I reinforce it. Which is precisely what Jesus does in the Lord's Prayer. He goes on and he finishes the prayer, yeah? And protect us from evil, for thine is the kingdom. And then what does he do in verses 14 and 15? You know, I, I seem to have lost most of you when I said that thing about forgiveness. And it's so important that I'm not willing to just let it go. So I want to just make sure you understood what I was saying there. So in verse four, verses 14 and 15, let's read this together again. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Once he's teaching the disciples to pray, he loops back around because he knows how critical this is to the economy of the kingdom of God. And he wants to make sure fundamentally they do not miss this point. And so he makes the point a second time. You know, I think it blows the disciples out of the water. In fact, you might remember the story in Matthew chapter 18. It seems that Peter's been stewing on this little bit of teaching for a while. Can't seem to digest it. Can't get it choked down. And so in a move where he thinks, you know, Jesus, sometimes you're hyperbolic. Sometimes you exaggerate, don't you? And so I've been thinking about this thing about forgiveness, and you're, you're, you're messing with us a little bit. But you know what? I get the point. I get it. Forgiveness matters. So how about this, Jesus? Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven? And what is Peter expecting? Peter, you got it. You were with me. We were on the same wavelength. What does Jesus come back and say? You don't get it. Not seven. Not seven times seven. But what? Seventy times seven. Which is, again, is a hyperbolic, metaphorical way of saying what? If you're counting, you're not really forgiving. In fact, you're just postponing revenge. If you're counting, you're not really forgiving. You're just postponing revenge. God operates with an economy of grace. Failure to forgive locks us out of the economy of grace that characterizes the relational reality of God's kingdom. If we're bound to God, then according to the scriptures, that means we're bound to each other. 
There is no being bound to God that is not equally a binding of one to the other. Period. In Matthew chapter 22, people come trying to trap Jesus about his teaching. They say, teacher, tell us, what's the greatest commandment? Because you know the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And the second is like it. And what is the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus does is he sets up a vertical line between us and God and ties it to a horizontal relationship line and says you don't get one without the other. We're bound to each other if we're bound to God. There's no experience of grace if we are not people who extend grace. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When we refuse to forgive, what we're saying is we want to live in the economy of power and judgment. And so when we say that, we're also saying that's how we want to be judged. And Jesus says, be very careful about assuming the mantle of judge. Because the standard that you use will be turned back towards you. He continues, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in somebody else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to them, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. See, there's this principle at work here. We end up seeing in other people the very thing that's true of ourselves. In fact, the reason why we go after other people is because we're so uncomfortable with what we can't handle ourselves that it's easier to point the finger at you than it is for me to look in the mirror. When you are upset with somebody, when you're seeing something in them, 99% of the time, according to Jesus, it's because it exists first in you. And so he's saying, be very careful about how you levy judgment. We're bound to each other. We're bound to each other. If you want forgiveness, and boy, do I want forgiveness. If we want forgiveness, you've got to be ready to give it. Folks, this is not a transactional brokering either. It's a relational posture of engagement if we see forgiveness largely as a transactional brokering of this equals that then we will miss the point it's a relational posture of openness to the other that refuses to judge why not because they're not guilty they are every act of forgiveness is also an act of accusation To forgive somebody, you have to accuse them of doing something wrong in the first place. But it's an open posture that says, what I want more than justice is reconciliation. It's not that there isn't justice to be meted out. It's not our job to do it. If our, art, if our hearts are open to receive and forgive others... What Jesus is saying is it will also be open to receive 
loves God's love and forgiveness. If it's locked up to one, it'll be locked up to the other. If it's opened up to one, it will be opened up to the other. John says something similar in his first epistle. John chapter uh, 4, verses 20 and 21. Let's read this together out loud again. If we say we love God, yet hate a brother or sister, we are liars. For if we do not love a fellow believer whom we have seen, we cannot love God whom we have not seen. And He has given us this command. Those who love God must also love one another. We are bound together. We cannot say we love God. We cannot say we've experienced the forgiveness of God when we hold prisoners in our hearts. It's just not possible. You know, it's really easy to deceive ourselves in this as well. It's really easy to talk love, 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 yeah, 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 and to hold deep wounds in our hearts that refuse an open posture of forgiveness and reconciliation. It's easy to go through the, the motions religiously. Come to church, worship, take communion, give money, and yet walk around carrying bitterness and revenge in our hearts. In 2008, I had the privilege to attend a conference on reconciliation. But it was devastating because it was in Rwanda. And to sit in a room filled with Hutus and Tutsis and listen to them talk to their experience of hatred, bitterness, revenge, their desire for justice, their need for mercy, it was nearly overwhelming. I brought a couple slides. This is a Catholic church. It's one of several hundred memorial churches where people went into worship thinking that they would be protected. And the walls are riddled with with bullets, holes. Those are the clothes of the victims left to sit on the pews as a memorial to the reality of what happened. The next slide is the altar. We've just taken communion. This is where they held the host. And on the altar are the machetes that are used. Back behind the church is a crypt. And underneath the crypt, this. Row upon row upon row of skulls and femurs and humerus bones. You go down there and you can imagine how overwhelming it is. Folks, Rwanda was largely a Christian culture. And yet there was a way of talking about the gospel that denied its power. So that when the years of hatred and bitterness and revenge that had been stored up were finally given an opportunity to be expressed, this. And pastors instructing. Unless we think that that's them, not us. The missionaries that were instructed by them were largely from the West. See, the reality is we do this kind of stuff to each other all the time. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look with lust at a woman or a man in your heart, you've already done it. We are all adulterers. And he says, 
You have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say to you, if you even say raka, fool, that you've already committed murder in your heart. Folks, we're a collection of murderers and adulterers. Desperately in need of God's forgiveness. And yet we're unwilling to forgive those who make us want to say raka. We do this to our spouses, to our parents, to our siblings, to our children, to our bosses, to our leaders, to our employees, to our friends, to anyone who has hurt us. We take them captive. We make them our hostages. Why? So they cannot hurt us again. Have you ever been powerless? That's how I began our time together this morning, this teaching, by asking that question. When have you experienced powerlessness? When somebody sins against us, it usually means they've exercised power over us in a damaging way. And that's doubly hard, isn't it? Because in addition to the pain that you feel from the, from the, from the sin, you also feel betrayed. You've made yourself vulnerable to somebody so that you might experience intimacy and in the openness that that vulnerability creates a stab wound. And so we feel doubly hurt, doubly humiliated. And so what do we do? We respond by creating some sort of self-protecting strategy that says, I'm not going to let that happen again. We respond in a way that lessens our vulnerability to them but here's the, here, here's the crux to God. Our self-protective strategies certainly protect us from each other. But they also limit our vulnerability to God and God's mercy. How do you respond when you're wounded? What is your strategy for dealing with it? You know the difficulty for forgiveness for me, just honestly? I don't want to give up power to you. If you've hurt me, that puts you in my debt. Now I can judge you. I can be in control over you because I now have something on you. You've hurt me, and now I'm in control. And I get to decide now, because I've been wounded, whether or not I want to be in relationship with you. And oftentimes, and this is just my heart being as black as it is, I would rather hold power and be in control than release you and work together as equals for reconciliation. Just the honest-to-goodness truth. Why? Because I want to save myself. And that's the problem. I cannot save myself. I need a Savior to release me and to rescue me from my broken power strategies. And to do that, I must surrender my pride, my privilege, and my power. As God did in Christ. In other words, I must embrace powerlessness. If I want to know and experience God's way, I must first let it flow through me and out of me. In other words, I must trust not in my own power, but in the power of God. I must forgive 
and be forgiven every moment of every day of my life. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, forgiveness and reconciliation is at the heart of what it looks like for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. There is no coming of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven without forgiveness and reconciliation. And there is no forgiveness and reconciliation without the willingness to let go of your privilege and your power and release it that we might be rejoined to each other. Are you holding anyone captive? What would it look like for you to release them? And maybe you're saying, Tim, you have no idea what I've been through. And you know what? You're absolutely right. And so maybe the first thing you do, you think about before releasing them yourself, is you say, Jesus, I can't release them, but I can hand you the key to their prison. You help let them go. It's the only step I can take right now. I'm going to hand you the key that I've been holding on to. What would it look like for you to be released from having to live your life as a prison guard. He has come to set the captives free. Us and our enemies. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, too often we are content to have a form of your power that denies the reality of its expression in our lives. Mostly because we're consumed with our own power. Lord, help us to release our power that we might experience yours, that we might experience forgiveness and mercy, not just as recipients, but as givers of it. For your sake, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Heal our hearts, Lord. Make us like you. Amen.